Great. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Good. It's warm. Everyone keeps telling me that there might still be snow. I'm praying, but I don't know. Maybe not. It, no, stop praying. I like the snow. I'm from Africa. We didn't get snow. You guys are like, oh, snow. What a, what a uh, terrible thing. Um, anyway, so my name is Caleb. Um, I'm married to Kathleen. If I've not met you, just want to say uh, that's a little bit about who we are. My wife can't be be here today but I um, would love to just get to know you and meet you um, after the service it's really good to be with you I'm excited um, when Frances came up and said she's feeling freedom I was like oh Lord you are so funny you know he's just always you know it's like he's just always ahead of us you know and so Today, um, we're in week six of a series called Grow, um, the tagline, the call of Jesus to his followers. Um, and today, I actually want to talk about our need for freedom and growing in freedom. And I don't think there's probably a more pertinent time to talk about this as the church. Um, uh, there's world war rumors happening all over social media and the news um, and regardless of your age maybe you're in high school maybe you're uh, in college or maybe you've got a career and um, wherever you are freedom is probably the most one of the most important subjects to understand and particularly the freedom that Jesus promises us and so what I want to do today is I've got three parts to my message the first part is I want to speak about culture's view of freedom how does our culture view freedom then I want to look at Jesus and his promise of freedom to us in John chapter 8 and then for the rest of my message I want to contrast these two views of freedom um, the culture's view and Jesus view and and my big idea today is quite simple it's, it's just one thing that that following Jesus putting your trust in Jesus is the ultimate infinitely liberating constraint it's on the screen there following Jesus is the ultimate infinitely liberating constraint that will make more sense to you as we take this little 25 minute journey together so put your seat belts on all right let's start with the first part culture's view of freedom and I'm specifically talking about the, the 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 freedom to choose one's values and beliefs in the 1950s one sociologist did a study on Western culture and try to understand uh, the Western culture's roots this is what he wrote as he analyzed the culture of that time he said most of us believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident that they scarcely need to be said choice is a good thing in life and the more of it we have the happier we are authority is inherently suspect nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave that's Alan Ehrenholt I mean if that was true in the 1950s more than 70 years ago how much more is that true now see our culture believes that and we should let each person do their own thing let, let each person live their own life however they want to live it as long as they don't harm anyone that's what culture is telling us culture is telling us that the only sin is not that that isn't tolerated is intolerance intolerance is is a sin in our culture and the truth is our culture's focus and emphasis on this concept this ideology of freedom has progressed over the centuries the truth is freedom didn't always have this sort of weight to it so how did freedom become so exalted 
to the point it is now. Well, let me highlight three key influences. There are a few more, but three key ones. Firstly, our culture's value of freedom increased because of the stifling state churches that dominated Europe for centuries and made no space for people who believe differently. So back in the day, the church and the nation, the governance of the nation, were essentially combined. Uh, it became very acute in the Catholic-Protestant wars. You can go read about it. And at that time, there were elite thinkers, guys like John Locke and Hugo Grotius. They started to dream at around that time when the church was dominating Europe. They started to think about and dream about this, this state that wouldn't be captive to one religion. And this new political order wouldn't be based on divine law, but instead it would be based on ethic of freedom and mutual benefit. And they started to imagine this state that would, wouldn't persecute people of different beliefs and, and different religions. And actually that's something that I very much agree with. Nations should never promote one religion and persecute others that have a different one. So that's the first kind of uh, prompting or influence on freedom. The second one was the 20th century. 20th century, there was all these world wars and there was communism and fascism and Stalin and, and Hitler. And, and these, these forces, these leaderships basically initiated a rise in opposition, uh, a rise in pushing back against communism and fascism. And I don't know about you, but I can't, I, I can only imagine that how, how limiting and constraining it must have been to, to live in a communist country. Um, it's much better to live in a nation where your freedoms and rights are honored and respected than it is to live under the tyranny of a dictator. So the 20th century catapulted culture's obsession with freedom even further. And then at the end of the 20th century, coming into the 21st century, there was this thing called postmodernism. And in the wake of postmodernism, freedom intensified even further. Postmodernism is an ideology. You see, for, for, for many years, Western culture, our culture actually believed that there was this thing as absolute truths and absolute morals. And we were encouraged to seek these things out. However, postmodernism teaches us that actually there is no such thing as absolute truth and absolute morals. Everything is subjective in life. Everything is relative. No one can speak with absolute authority about anything spiritual or anything moral. We don't know and we can't know, so everyone must just choose their own path. Everyone should be free to believe what they like and live as they see fit. And so from state churches in Europe that dominated to the 20th century dictators and great wars to the rise of postmodernism, freedom has become one of our culture's most exalted beliefs and ideologies. And maybe you're here today and you're exploring faith in Jesus. Maybe you've walked into church or you've come a few times and you actually would agree with postmodernism. You would agree with this, this ideology that there are no absolute truths, that truth is relative, morality is, is relative. I just want to say to you, it's actually awesome to have you in the room. As a church, we love having different people come in with different perspectives. And if anything, I would hope you would see that Jesus actually values freedom even more than culture. And more than that, you'll see that he invites those that follow him, he invites them to experience ultimate freedom. 
All right, so we've just looked at culture's view of freedom. Let me, let me transition. Let's look at the promise of Jesus to us in terms of freedom. Jesus' promise of freedom. Can I ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8? Um, it will be on the screen behind me as well. If you don't have a Bible on your phone, you can download version. There's all sorts of Bible apps. It's great to read with as we go together. So this is John 8, 30 to 36. Let me start with context while you're uh, finding that scripture. So here's the context for this passage. Jesus is hanging out. He's in the middle of a very heated conversation with a group of religious people known as Pharisees. And they're, they're kind of arguing. They're attacking him. Um, they're calling him a deceiver. They call him demon-possessed. They even say to Jesus that all the miracles he's done have been uh, because of evil spirits within him. And generally in the Gospels, when this happens, Jesus kind of withdraws. He doesn't engage. But this time, Jesus engages this group of Pharisees um, and he preaches to them. So let's, let's take it verse by verse. Verse 30 says, John 8, 30, Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So as Jesus is preaching, he notices that although there's some kind of argumentative antagonists in the room, some people have actually crossed the line of faith. Some people have heard his words and believed what he said. They've trusted him. And now it, it obviously must be clear to Jesus who these new believers are because he's about to transition and give these new believers like a bit of a pep talk um, and it's actually quite rare a new believing pep talk um, it's not all over the scripture you see it in Acts 2 in terms of what the early church gave themselves to and and what the early Christians or new believers did but here Jesus gives us really a pep talk on what is most important if you've just crossed the line of faith like if you've just become a new Christian like there's so much what's the most important yeah Jesus tells us in verse 31 and 32 he says to the Jews who had believed Jesus said if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free short and sweet I like it number one hold to my teaching number two Jesus promises that if they do that they'll know the truth and the truth will set them free these are the words of jesus to to a group of new believers amidst a bunch of antagonists let's quickly look at these two things hold to my teaching if you open up i don't know how often you open up the bible but if you open up the bible and you study the gospels these accounts of jesus life you'll find that jesus taught in in summary really two things he, he taught about reality and he taught about how to live in reality so about Reality, he taught the people about God. He taught people about who he is. He, he taught people about who they are and why they're here. And then about how to live in reality, he taught us about prayer and about relationships and conflicts and the power of our words and humility and forgiveness and, and the correct use of sexuality and finances and power. Here Jesus tells these new believers to hold to his teaching. What is he saying? He's saying to them, let me define reality for you and then let me give you values that you won't only cherish, but you actually live by these things. That, that was the teaching of Jesus, defining reality. Who am I? Who is God? Why am I here? What's true? What's not true? And how to live. And Jesus says, embrace this definition of reality. Embrace these set of values. Live your life by them. 
Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you've just crossed the line of faith or you're considering faith in Jesus. I want to echo the words of Jesus to you this morning. If you're wondering where to focus your time or maybe you feel young in your faith, where do I focus my time? Take the words of Jesus. He says, hold fast to my teachings. Steep yourself in the words of the Gospels. Seek to understand the Gospels. Find out how does Jesus define your reality? Who is God? Who is He? Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What is God doing in the world? Find out Jesus' vision for your life. His values for your life. Who He wants you to become. The kind of things He wants you to do. All of that is achieved as you hold on to His teachings. But why? Why, why should we hold on to the teachings of Jesus? I mean, there's so many other teachings out there. Because this is how we find ultimate freedom. There is no other way. And that's the second thing Jesus tells these new believers. Jesus says in verse 32, hold on to my teaching and then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus promises that when we trust in Him and His teachings, when we're obedient to Him and His teachings, when we realign our lives and our time and our motivations to Him and His teachings, only then will we begin to live in greater and greater levels of freedom. I think the freedom that Jesus is referring to here is both a psychological freedom, peace and joy in your mind, I don't know if you have peace and joy in your mind and heart, psychological. But then also, it's not just psychological, but it's also spiritual. Spiritual means you, you know God. You're able to know Him. He's able to know you. It's understanding Him and it's serving Him. So, so let me zoom out. So Jesus has given this pep talk to these new believers. Hold to my teaching. Hold fast. There's still antagonists in the room. And as Jesus is promising this to the new believers, they interject. They say, it says, verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? So Jesus promises them freedom and, he, and they respond by saying, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Freedom we are free thank you very much thank you very much Jesus I am free we're, show me the shackles we're descendants of Abraham the chosen nation how does Jesus respond to them he simply addresses the fact that they've got the wrong definition of freedom they've defined freedom in a different way it's a classic misunderstanding Two different people having an argument with a different definition. And so Jesus clarifies and he explains to them what does he mean when he refers to freedom? What is his definition? What is his promise of freedom? He explains this, verse 34 and 35. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So what is the freedom Jesus is talking about? He says two things. Number one, it, Jesus gets you free from something. Number two, Jesus gets you free to do something or for something. Jesus says, I'm giving you freedom from psychological and spiritual enslavement. See, when you follow Jesus, 
Yes, this is one of the most incredible things about following Jesus. You are no longer a slave to fear. You're no longer a slave to your circumstances. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to guilt, to shame. There's nothing in this life that can actually touch you. Yes, it can physically maybe hurt you or physically you can be affected, but ultimately, ultimately you're protected. Ultimately you're free. <laughs> Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. <laughs> Paul's like, even death can't grab me because <laughs> if I die, I'm with Jesus. So Jesus frees us from any enslavement. Maybe you're going through something now in your life. Maybe you feel like you're a slave. You're enslaved to guilt. You're enslaved to shame. You're enslaved to uh, a burden you're carrying. You know what's incredible about the gospel? Is that in Jesus, you're given a new future. Even if that burden continues for another 20 years, ultimately, you will one day be with Jesus. Ultimately, He will one day wipe every tear from our eye. There'll be no mourning, no pain, no suffering, no bad situations, no confusion, no pursuit. Ultimately, you'll be free. So you're set free from something. That's what Jesus is saying here. But He also says we're free to do something. We're free to enjoy our place in God's family as a son and a daughter. We're, we're free to enjoy the security of eternity. Even with a world war looming, it cannot touch us. Yes, it can physically impact us. Country could change. Inflation rates could go up. Interest rates could go up. I mean, there's so many things that could happen physically. But ultimately, even a world war cannot enslave us. <laughs> it cannot touch us. It cannot touch our spirits because we've been set free. We're able to enjoy the security that comes along with knowing Jesus, the significance and the belonging that comes from that. And so Jesus is preaching this message. They've got the wrong definition of freedom. Jesus interjects their interjection and says, guys, you've got it all wrong. I've, I'm bringing a new freedom. It's a revolutionary freedom. For the, for the locals, for the Pharisees at that time, they'd never heard of this. This is revolutionary. They're thinking under the, the context of Abraham's descendants. Jesus is like, I'm going way bigger than Abraham. It's way bigger than Abraham. And then Jesus kind of lands and drops the mic with verse 36. He says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. <laughs> If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Jesus has this very clear idea of freedom. And it's something that He wants every single person to enjoy. You study the, the Gospels, what do you see? Jesus travels around preaching the good news. He didn't do that just because He had to. His heart was that every person would hear this message of freedom. And every person would respond. When He dies and He's risen from the dead and He goes to ascend to His Father, He commissions His disciples. What does He say? Going to all the world. He tells them to do what he had just done, but now do it in the whole world. Preach this message of freedom. John 8, it's revolutionary. It's life-changing. It's countercultural. That's the promise that Jesus has for us of freedom. All right, let me pause. Let's recap. We've just looked at culture's view of freedom. We've looked at Jesus' promise of freedom. Now I want to compare the two. I want to make it very clear for us. Because the reality is we've got to choose. And it's a choice we make every single day. 
You see, on the one hand, when you look at culture and, G- and Jesus, the message sounds quite similar. Both are saying that if you want to live your best life, you've got to live in the context of freedom. Okay? So they both are saying the same thing. Freedom, very important. But there's a, a, there's a question. If, if they're the same, why does Christianity... Why is Christianity seen as the arch enemy of freedom in our culture? Like when you talk to someone at work and they're like, Oh, you, like, do you believe in something? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh my word, I'm so sorry. All those rules. Church on Sundays. Oh. Why is Christianity seen as the arch enemy of freedom in our culture? That's because Jesus has a very different definition of freedom. Different to our culture. You go back to the, the John 8 conversation, the same thing happened with the Pharisees. Jesus proclaims his freedom message, and they're like, what? We, what are you going on about? We are free. And Jesus challenges their understanding of what freedom actually is. And so for the rest of my message, I want to show how Jesus challenges our culture's message of freedom and how He, Jesus, offers us, you and me today, 27th of February, how He offers us real freedom. Three differences. Difference number one. Culture says no one can know the truth. No one knows the ultimate truth. I've got a table there. Oh, it's cut off dash it all right it's cut off but it's fine i'll say it anyway no one can know the truth christ says this know the truth and it will set you free remember i spoke about postmodernism, this ideology at the heart of this claim is that we cannot know the truth for high schoolers and college students you'll hear this more than anyone you cannot know the truth everything is relative everything is subjective you can have your truth but you can't have the truth that's very exclusive of you that's what you would hear now it sounds very fancy but it actually it's a very weak uh, argument philosophically because it cuts off the branch that it's sitting on so bear with me here for a moment so if someone says that that there is no absolute truth do you see how that in itself is an absolute truth? Do you see that? So they're saying the very thing that you can't say, they're saying it themselves. So let's, it, it's essentially self-contradicting. So, so let's play a scenario out. You're at work, it's Tuesday morning, um, and you're talking to someone at your office about Jesus and the gospel. And at a certain point, they say to you, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. Are you try- what are you trying to do to me? Are you trying to convert me? Are you trying to get me to adopt your view on Jesus and spiritual reality and convert me? And obviously the honest answer is, yes, I am trying to convert you. To which they would probably say to you, how narrow, how terrible of you. Nobody should impose their view of reality on anybody else and try to convert them. Everybody must just leave everyone else alone. Just, just live your life and believe what you want to believe. What do you say to that? It's a good argument. What do you say to that? Well, this is what I would say. I would say to the person, wait a minute. You want me to adopt your view of spiritual reality. You want me to adopt your view that no one can know the truth. What are you doing to me? Can't you see that, that what you're saying is or what, what you're saying is that you have a take on, on a spiritual reality and that you think the world be, would be better off if everyone just adopted your view or your take on it? 
Can't you see that everyone has a reality? Everyone has a truth that they believe is absolute. So you can't call me narrow because you're doing the very thing to me what I'm trying to do to you. They're both narrow. They both are absolute in both person's eyes. If someone says to you, don't try to convert me, just let everyone believe their own thing because there is no real absolute truth. That in itself is an absolute truth. And here's the key. And I've got it on the, the screen behind me. Narrowness is not the content of what we believe. This is very key. Narrowness is not the content of what we believe. Narrowness is our attitude toward the people who don't share our point of view. Every view, every religion, every faith, atheism, Islam, Christianity, every single viewpoint can be seen as narrow. But actually the content itself doesn't make it narrow. What makes it narrow is the person and how they respond to other people with other, view, with other views. And there will always be people who don't share our view. And so in John 8, Jesus says, Hold to my teaching, then you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. According to Jesus, real freedom comes from knowing and believing the real truth. As Christians, we actually have to believe that there is only one real truth. Like you, if someone says to you, is Christianity exclusive? The answer is yes, it is very exclusive. That doesn't make it narrow because Christians should be the most loving toward people that have different perspectives. Christians should, be the, should listen the most to people with different views. It doesn't make it narrow. If you have no truth, then you'll have no freedom, Jesus says. You must know the truth and then you'll have freedom. Second difference between our culture and Christ's view of freedom. Culture says that freedom refuses all constraints. Jesus says freedom accepts the right constraints. See, our culture seems to teach us this idea that, that the fewer boundaries you have on, in your life, the, the fewer constraints you have as you make decisions, the more free you will be. No one should limit my constraints. Or no one should limit or constrain my choices because then you're taking my freedom away. But is that really true? Think about that for a moment. Philosophically, is that really true? Are all constraints bad? Surely freedom actually involves accepting some constraints and rejecting others. And let me give you a couple examples why I believe this is true. Number one, let's talk about diet, beers and your age. As you get older, you can't eat everything you want. All right, at a certain point, your doctor is going to sit you down and say, Travis, <laughs> two beers a week, two beers and no more. And he's going to say, Travis, Jonah Lee is going to cook beautiful biscuits or cookies, chocolate chip cookies. They're going to be on your kitchen counter. You're going to look those cookies in the eye and you're going to say no. <laughs> That's what you've got to do, Travis. You've got to put constraints down, Travis. See, as you get older, you have to give up your freedom to eat anything you want to. Why? Because you know that as you accept those constraints, it's also going to lead to something better. It's going to lead to a richer, deeper freedom of good health, long life, and more time, hopefully, with the grandkids. The constraint of your diet will determine the freedom you actually live in other areas of your life. Here's another example. 
Let's say you are, you've just got a, a special someone. This is for the high schoolers and the college students. Okay, you've fallen madly in love. And um, this, this, you've got this romantic relationship. Um, and immediately, as you fall into, into love, your independence is curtailed. Um, but then what happens is you go on this weekend away. And in the past, you just, you know, you just simply left town, you went with your friends, um, and you didn't kind of tell anyone. And then what happens is Friday night you get a phone call to say, hey, where are you? Where are you at? And you're like, oh no, I'm in Pennsylvania. And the other person says, oh, well, were you going to tell me or check in with me? Or, or how did, I mean, what, what does that mean? And like, well, I, I'm my own person, you say. I don't need you, I don't need anyone to tell me where I'm going. I, I belong to myself. And you tell this newly loved person, they don't have the right to determine your life because you're a free person. Then there'll be this long silence on the other end of the phone. And they'll probably say something like, well, that's good to know, it's over. <laughs> Enjoy the weekend away. See, the thing is, when you fall in love, immediately you, you set constraints in your life. You, when you're in love, you can't be completely free in the contemporary sense of the word. There are constraints you accept as you get into a relationship. When the person is sick, you've got to care for them. You don't just get to choose anything you want whenever you want it. And, and you know what happens? What happens when a, when a relationship flourishes is that both people simultaneously give up their independence and on a continuous basis, they say to each other, you first. I will adjust for you. I will sacrifice my needs to meet your needs. And as they both do that to each other, there's no exploitation and there's this incredible freedom in their relationship, this depth of love and, 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 and richness and, and unconditional grace. Only when both people in a relationship are able to accept and embrace the constraints of their romantic relationship will they be able to live in a free, happy relationship or marriage or whatever it may be and here's my point my point is culture tells us that freedom involves as little or few constraints as possible but that's actually not true real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others i'll say that again real freedom and this applies to all of life real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It's not the absence of constraints, but it's choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. Remember when Jesus gives his little new believer pep talk, he, he calls everyone, these new believers, to hold on to his teachings. What does that mean? It means that we cannot hold on to other things too. We, we cannot hold on to Jesus' teaching and other things. We have to restrict ourselves. We have to constrain ourselves from believing and doing anything that contradicts the teachings of Jesus. Let's say that um, Jesus says in the Gospels that we're saved by grace, which he does. Not of our good works, but only because of what he's done on the cross. But then you're driving in your car and you're listening to the radio or you're reading a book and you hear someone say, no, no, no. You can earn your salvation. You, you can earn it if, through your good deeds and kind of through your sincerity of heart and, and, and church attendance maybe, you can actually grow in, in terms of God's love for you and you can earn your salvation. 
But you cannot believe both of those things. You cannot believe that you're saved by grace or you're saved by works. And that's the freedom that Jesus gives us. He gives us the freedom to say yes to things that He says yes to and no to things that He says no to. He gives us the freedom to reject beliefs that don't align with His Word. And the same goes for our sexuality. Think about this. Culture tells us that pornography doesn't harm anyone because it's just you in private. Culture tells us we should be sexually free. And, and, and if other people are sexually free, we can, you know, enjoy life. Just don't hurt anyone. But Jesus says that expressing your sexuality outside of marriage, outside of the confines, the constraints of marriage, is actually harmful to your soul. It's even harmful to your physical body and it will eventually lead to a physical and spiritual death. See, if we're going to hold on to the teachings of Jesus, we've got to accept the limitations in terms of believing and receiving and doing only the things that He allows us or the things that He specifies and rejecting the things that He contradicts or that contradicts Him. Culture's view and Christ's view. Freedom refuses all constraints. Jesus says, choose the right constraints. Freedom accepts the right constraints. And then finally, and I'm going to come to close soon, the third difference between culture and Christ for your freedom. Culture says, you are your own master. Jesus says, no, you're not. You are always serving some master, but none will be as worthy or liberating as me. See, our culture tells us that we are our own masters. But Jesus suggests that actually that's a delusion. Remember the words of Jesus in John 8? The Pharisees say, Jesus, we're free already. What are you talking about? Jesus says to them, whoever sins is a slave to sin. The point Jesus is making is that you can be enslaved and not even realize it. You can be enslaved and not even realize it. And this is actually more true than many of us even realize. Because the truth is, there's not a single person here today that isn't enslaved in some way. We are all serving some master. Some of us are serving Jesus as our master, but not all of us are. Some of us have gotten distracted with money. Some of us have gotten distracted with power. Some of us have got distracted with sexuality, whatever it is. We're all serving some master all the time. And in, in the cases where there's addiction, so I think of alcohol or sex or pornography or drugs, it becomes obvious, you know, those things become your master. You have to go to rehab. That's quite obvious. You're not free. But it's even more true even if you don't have addictions. Because human nature dictates that our hearts have to always serve something. We are always looking for a master. Some of us say, okay, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to use my freedom for, for bad things. I'm actually going to use my freedom uh, to live a committed life. So maybe this, what I'm about to read, maybe this resonates with some of you. Some of you have said this, I'm going to use my freedom to commit to my spouse or my loved one. Some of you say, I'm going to use my freedom to to." dive into work and be committed to work and give my best some of you have said i'm going to use my freedom to pursue sports achievements i'm going to use my freedom to grow my bank balance or my net worth i'm going to use my freedom to love my family really really well 
I'm going to use my freedom to serve my community more than anyone else I know. But can't you see that as you live out those things, your work, your family, your community, those things become your master. Those things become your master. And I've only listed a few there. We're always serving a master. See, whatever the, whatever's the object of your meaning and your satisfaction ultimately will control you. What gives you meaning? What gives you satisfaction? That thing is controlling you. So you're never your own master. You're never actually free in the contemporary definition. Something is always mastering you. And so here's the question I want to I pose to you as I come into land. What master do you think will truly bring you the greatest freedom? And maybe you can even, if you're wondering the answer to that question, ask the first question, which is, what is your master right now? Like I said, every single one of us have a master. Whatever is providing satisfaction and meaning to your life is your master. Maybe the answer is Jesus, but maybe it's not. There's many times in my life where the answer has not been Jesus, even as a Christian. What is your master right now? What is mastering you? And what master will truly bring you the greatest freedom? That's a question for the, those that are following Jesus and those that are exploring faith in Jesus. See, real freedom is not a matter of having no constraints. It's a matter of choosing the right constraints. And following Jesus is the ultimate liberating constraint. And that's where Jesus steps in. He steps in John 8, 36. He says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus promises that those that follow Him are ultimately free. In other words, in your lifetime, you will serve multiple masters. But there is one truth that we need to remember. None of us will ever, ever, ever find a master as kind and as loving and as gracious and as liberating as Jesus. None of us will. We will serve different masters, but we will never find a master like Jesus. Can I invite the band up?